Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast. If you are under 18 years of age, stop the podcast now. This is episode 175 of our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the kinky cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. Today, we bring you, Ken Marcus, world-famous glamour photographer. Here's your host, Woody. Thanks, Max, and welcome to another edition of the Kinky Cast. Sitting to the left of me is the Beast. Hiding in the dark corner, as As usual. usual. Yes. Yes, I am. Woody, I'm just going to dive into it this week. Open up the pool. We were precast. We were leafing through this guy's work, and I hate to say this guy. He's amazing. Hello, Ken. Good afternoon. Ken, you are a photographer in the kink world. You started off in the music world and I guess other things. Uh, Actually, I started off uh, being trained to be a large format black and white landscape photographer. I spent 13 years studying with Ansel Adams. Wow. Now that is The resume just gets better and better. It does. It truly does. Well, having Ansel Adams as a, a mentor could be a uh, something that looks really good on your resume. No one ever has asked to see my resume because I've never applied for a job anywhere. But, you know, uh, but it does look good if I had one. Uh, the one thing that it re- not the one thing, many, many great things out of there. But one of the good things that Ansel had done for me was uh, while I was still in high school, he wrote a letter to the uh people over at Art Center College of Design and uh, made arrangements for me to be able to take night classes there. Uh, Normally, you would have had to have had two years worth of university before you can even get your foot in the door at Art Center. So by the time I graduated high school, I had already had a couple of years of education in regards to advertising photography, landscape photography, uh, food photography, product photography. I was pretty well-rounded. And uh, a couple weeks after my 18th birthday, I rented a studio, which is where I still am today. Well, I guess that's some longevity for 50-plus years. Yeah. Yeah, I just celebrated uh, 50 years in my building about a year and a half ago. We had a big party retrospective show. And, um, yeah, my work has changed quite a bit over the years. I started out doing commercial stuff. But very early on, someone saw some nudes that I had done. Somehow the word got to Bob Guccione, who um, was a magazine publisher in England, Uh, He had a little magazine there called Penthouse that no one in America had ever seen because it was illegal to show pubic hair in magazines in those days. And Penthouse showed full nudity. So uh, he had seen some pictures that I had done, called me up one night from England and asked if I would be interested in shooting for Penthouse magazine. I asked him how much it paid and uh, the the pay was abysmal. I mean, at this point in my life, I was making good money shooting advertising, and he only wanted to pay like $250 for a layout. But I thought it might be fun, have an excuse to shoot some nudes. 
So uh, I, I made him a deal. I said, look, I'll shoot for you. But the one thing I want you to do is to put my name on the pictures. Because in those days, it was very rare for photographers ever to get photo credits. So when Penthouse Magazine came out about a year later in the United States, the very first layout, the very first edition had my pictures in there with very large photo credits, photographs by Ken Marcus. And within about a year and a half, my whole career took a major change from being involved in advertising, fashion, food, and architecture into um, being a well-known erotic photographer. I spent three years doing that for Penthouse, and then I left and switched over to Playboy. So you were indeed the trailblazer in this industry in the United States. Yeah, one of them. I mean, at the time that, that, that it became legal for pubic hair to be shown, I may have been the very first photographer to get published, or if I wasn't, I was certainly amongst maybe the first three or four because it came out within a week or so after or actually within two weeks or so after the court decision. It was, uh, it was some interesting times. I actually met a guy who spent 20 years in prison for taking a picture of a nude and sending it through the mail. Whoa. And you're a, a young 20-something in this very fast-paced world. Yeah, I was at that particular point, for sure. What was it like? You was working for the Hef and Guccione and the mansion. You were at the mansion? Oh, yeah. I spent 11 years working with Playboy. I've always maintained my own studio, but they were, a, they were an account of mine. And so for 11 years, I was their number one photographer. That must have been truly a very interesting time because we were evolving. And this was the evolution of the 60s and 70s there when society was upending itself. Oh, it was. It was. And I was very fortunate to be right there on the cutting edge, being paid to, you know, document what was going on and observe what was going on and to be part of what was going on. Such a tough life to have to shoot nudes, you know, beautiful women around. Of course, it's makeup artists and dressers and everything else. You know, beautiful assistants, beautiful makeup artists. Beautiful weather, beautiful sets, beautiful location. Life is just beautiful. He says. Somebody paid me to say that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to. I was, I was wondering if the California Tourism Board is, is funding part of this here. Uh, no, as a matter of fact, what the California Tourism Board wants us to promote is the fact that we have constant earthquakes, we have constant fires, constant drought. You'll have a miserable time. Don't come here. <laughs> It seems to be working. Yeah, but you no. have happy, happy cows, so, so that makes up for it. I grew up in Los Angeles. I've never really lived more than a block away from the neighborhood that I'm in right now. From the time I was a little kid, I watched productions being shot on the streets around here. Because, you know, like maybe if I was in a farming community, I'd see cows being milked. But growing up in Hollywood, you see movies being made. So it was just kind of natural that I would fall into, uh, you know, something having to do with production. And many of the shoots that you did for Playboy and Penthouse, those were productions. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had a crew of 11 people. On many of them, we would have caterers that would come in. We would work all day long. When I first started working with the people at Playboy, they had never worked with a photographer that had the same kind of 
um, I don't want to say work ethic, but maybe so, uh, work habits that I had. I would come in, I'd spend all day working on the set, working on the lighting, all of that. And then when they were all leaving to go home at five o'clock, we'd just be putting film in the camera. So at that time, they used to give Playboy photographers different nicknames. And my nickname was Count Markula, the joke being that I don't put film in the camera till after the sun goes down. Okay. But then we're working and we're shooting until 10, 11 o'clock at night, which is when you get sexy pictures. The other photographers would start in, they'd start, they'd come to work at nine in the morning and they'd leave at five in the afternoon, which is why for many, many years, Playboy's pictures were sexless. They were just dull and uninteresting, you know, pretty girls hiding behind brightly colored beach balls. There was a shift and it became bigger, bigger productions and the girls were allowed to interact more with the process from what I've seen in the picture. That was the heyday of Playboy. That was when I was there. And basically what had happened was when I was with Penthouse, when Penthouse first started in the United States, they had a circulation of about 400,000, which is really good for a foreign magazine. Playboy had a circulation of close to 7 million. Within a year and a half, Playboy's circulation dropped from 7 million down to about 4 million, and Penthouse's circulation rose to 4 million. They were like neck and neck for a good number of years, and it scared the hell out of the people at Playboy. Uh, they didn't know what to do. They they looked at Penthouse and they saw girls masturbating. They saw couples screwing. They saw sex. And they looked at their own magazine and they saw pretty girls showing their tits. It was glamour shoots. It was glamour shoots. It was a whole different kind of thing. So when I started with penthouse i really didn't want to do glamour shoots i wasn't interested in doing playboy style stuff at all when i left penthouse i still liked the idea of shooting nudes a lot so i went down the street literally they were both on the same block at the same time and i went to playboy magazine it's kind of a long story but it sums up with they fired seven photographers and replaced them with me and for the next 11 years i had as many assignments as i could handle i averaged 280 shooting days a year we were in massive production you were shooting more than five days a week oh yeah a lot of people don't realize how much work that goes into turning out a great photograph it's not just picking up the camera, holding it up to your eye, and pushing a button. Well, I mean, technically it is, except I would never hold the camera. I'd put it on a tripod. I mean, yeah, eventually the button has to get pushed, but it's all the other things that go into it. The production quality of Playboy at that time, we had – I know it's hard for people to understand in this day and age, but it was an interesting thing. It was like riding the last of the dinosaurs – we had unlimited budgets. Oh. We could spend whatever we needed to get the stuff done. You don't find that anymore? Ever. No. It's unlimited. But I don't even know if the CIA gets unlimited budgets anymore these days. But, yeah, that was one of the things that I had to do. My, my job description, when I, when I first went to meet with the Playboy people, uh, after you know we kind of both – made it known that we wanted to work together. They flew a bunch of their editors out to have a meeting with me. And uh, I had been in lots of, you know, client meetings with advertising people. So I brought a pad of paper and a pen and 
figured they would tell me what they want me to produce for them. How many, you know, nudes, how many non nudes, how many butt shots, how many front shots. I would assume that that's what Playboy would have told me. Instead, an hour and a half later, I walked out of there with a piece of paper that had written on it, fly first class, only stay in the best hotels, eat in the best restaurants. If you're going to travel somewhere, let our publicity department know where you're going so that they can make sure that the city that you go to, there's lots of publicity. Everybody knows who you are and why you're there. Tip big so that nobody steals your stuff and whatever else you do. Always try and look like you're having a good time. It's all about the image, wasn't it? It has nothing to do with butt shots or boob shots or, you know, what kind of film they want me to shoot on or whatever. It was really kind of an interesting uh, education. And for 11 years, I got to live that. I find that uh, amazing because we go back to the great artists throughout history, and they always had their patrons, and their patrons usually were very specific on what they wanted as far as their artists to produce. Yeah. This was an era where the patron was given the artist free reign. Well, not exactly free reign. I mean, you know, you had certain parameters that you had to, you know, deal with. One is you had to know your audience so you know what, they, what they're looking for. The other is you have to be able to provide them with a quality product. And that was not an easy thing to do back in the 1970s, 1980s. Just getting an image to appear on film was kind of a mystical thing. I mean, you know, you could count on one hand the number of photographers that, you know, that well, maybe two hands, the number of photographers that did glamour photography in those days. It was a tough business. And then you had the Postal Service and various other censors trying to take your film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've had film confiscated by the Postal Service. I've had film confiscated by Kodak. One day, all of a sudden, the lawyers at Kodak decided that if pictures showed certain things, that they can't give it back to us. The Kodak police. The Kodak police. But see, the thing is, when you're in the magazine business, when you're dealing with a worldwide audience, you have different sensors in different places that you need to deal with. Even after we became a much wider open society in the United States, we still had to shoot pictures for Playboy and Penthouse that could be published in Brazil. And in Brazil, they had what was called the two out of three rule, which meant you could show one breast and one cheek of the rear end. Or you could show both breasts, but no rear end and no crotch. Or you could show one breast and a crotch, but not the other breast. You went in, into each of these shoots then. Your your models had to be what appealed to the local audience. No, we would use the same models the for same model? audience. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we would even bring models in from other countries. You know, like we had some really good German uh, centerfolds and, uh, you know, but the Japanese, which were huge clients for what we were offering, they mostly wanted to see the American girls, but they would send their art director over here to pick different pictures for the ones to go around the main layout because their viewpoint of facial expressions is different than that of what we have in the United States. There's a cultural shift wherever you go. Airbrush out the pubic hair. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Playboy never airbrushed. 
for, even for Japan? No, what they would do for that is we would shoot pictures specifically for the Japanese. They couldn't show pubic hair over there for many years. And so we would, we would shoot stuff specifically for them that, uh, you know, the girls would be wearing panties. And we would shoot a layout, let's say, for Penthouse. It would be a two-day shoot, maybe a couple days of prep and a couple of days of returning things or whatever. It's a small amount of work involved. When we would do a layout for Playboy, that could go on for two or three months. Wow. We had to shoot things that could be used for covers. We had to shoot things that could be used for Christmas subscription ads. We had to use things that could be used for Easter bunny things. We had all these various different products that we had to produce of images of each of these girls who were not professional models. Most of these girls have never modeled before in their life. You have witnessed the evolution of sex in America from the 60s to now. Any comments on where we come from and where we are today? Yeah. These young whippersnappers today, they don't know how much fun we used to have. No, I mean, yeah, you could, you, you could say that. Sex went through a lot of really strange things. I mean, when birth control came in back in the, you know, 60s, late 50s, early 60s, it changed the dynamics between men and women. And it was a fun time. In those days, women were expressing themselves through their sexuality openly for the first time in American history, safely, without having to worry about children coming in as a, as, as a side benefit. What do they call it when a medicine doesn't work right? A, a side effect in some cases, you know, in many cases. Or, and there's some wonderful people out there, too, I guess. So it, it must work for somebody. Anyway, it was a wild time. Things were changing in society in many, many different ways, and the sexuality only went along with whatever else was going on. Um, you know, the baby boomers were just coming into their own with the philosophy of question everything. So whatever was there from before us had to be no good. Whatever we could discover and make happen for ourselves now had to be the best. And, uh, you know, that's true of every generation. But that's the way it was back then. It wasn't until AIDS came in that uh, it really kind of majorly changed the sexual situation in America because people had gotten used to being very openly sexual. And now all of a sudden you have a generation of people. I remember I had someone working in my studio for a good number of years and her attitude basically was sex equals death. Sex is not something that you do, you know. That's the time frame that I come of age in is the late 70s, early 80s. And it was what we had been going through before all of a sudden come to a screaming halt. Yeah. And that was an abrupt uh, time for people that come of age and that or the, that decade or so there. Uh, they were working on what they saw in their parents' generation, but that wasn't no longer the norm. Everything ground to a halt. I mean, there was no new norm that's hidden for a lot of years because nobody knew where this disease was coming from. Nobody knew how it was being spread. And eventually they were able to figure that out. But even still, there was nothing that you could do about it for a lot of years. You know, it was it was tragic. Everybody knew somebody who had it or died from it. 
particularly in Los Angeles. You were kind of in a epicenter area on the West Coast where San Francisco and Los Angeles were big party cities. Big party cities, and we and 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 New York and Chicago and Miami were the the first areas where these things came out and were noticed. You know, but it's since spread to everywhere. How did it affect the shooting for the magazines at that time? It didn't. I don't think it did. I know that it affected the porn business, but you know the magazines. Even Penthouse still continued all through that time to publish boy-girl sets. So it wasn't just girl-girl, it wasn't just single-girl, but they also published boy-girl you know, sex sets. So, um, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that it affected it. It may have even been good for business. Yeah, the fantasy was safer than the reality for a while there. Fantasy is always safer than reality. Yeah, but it's nowhere near as fun. So if you fast forward here a few years, when did the uh, the real fetish photography come in for you? I'm not even sure that I have heard the word fetish when I first started doing these kinds of things. I remember experimenting with nude bodies and rope, tying girls to furniture and things like that way, way back. I mean, like even before, right around the time that I started with, with Penthouse. So that would have been, you know, like late teens or something like that. I had my studio since I was 18 and I've been shooting nudes all my life. Shot my first nude. I think I was in the third grade. So I had to have been eight years old Been doing this a long time. But yeah, so it was like, you know, growing up and here I was, I, I got my studio in 1960. Five and L.A. was just starting to change. I mean, we were going from a beatnik era into what was going to be the hippie era. The uh, free speech movement was happening. Music was starting to change around. Uh, sexuality was becoming more experimental and open, although you couldn't really make it open legally. Uh, it was still illegal to own books that uh, talked about BDSM. Uh, it was illegal to tie people up. Uh, it was illegal to do a lot of things. There was a small underground society in L.A., as there were in other cities that were mostly male, gay, kind of military-style motorcycle group styled uh, BDSM things, but those were very close society. And like, unless you were invited into one of those things, you'd have never, you'd never have an idea knowing what was going on around you. I grew up in West Hollywood, you know, as a kid, we knew that these things existed, but really you never really saw much about that. It wasn't really until uh, the internet, when you could really go online and find stuff from people in other countries that were posting things up where you could see things. When I first started my website back in 1996 and I started going online, I realized that there were these news groups for all kinds of odd things. I mean, my God, here's a place you can go and it's only for people that like feet. Isn't that amazing? They put up their own home pictures. They swap pictures back and forth. It's like, wow, didn't know that existed. 
look at these terrible pictures of these really ugly feet, badly done. Why don't I get one of my models and get some pretty feet and light it right and do the same thing and put it up there, and then maybe they'll have something they like looking at. And that was really how early, early on in my website stuff that I started finding out about fetishes and things that I was maybe not personally into, but, you know, interesting. And uh, there's audiences in all of these different areas. Same with rope. Yeah, we had uh, Betty Page and Irving Claw and so forth pioneering some of this stuff, but his very underground back in the late 50s and 60s. He had to destroy all of his work. Her life was ruined. She had to run away, get out of New York. Um, and, you know, this was just because a bunch of senators wanted to, like, you know, put them on the stand and grill them. And none of this work become well-known to much later in the 90s and uh, early 2000s when the work really become popularized. It, it was evolving, and you were there for it. And when did you shoot your first truly kinky shoot? Was there a watershed moment, or did it just kind of evolve over time? Well, you'd have to name the kink. <laughs> so there isn't a watershed moment. French pool, but she's naked? Or is it, you know, the first time I tied a girl up using barbed wire to a farmer's fence out in the middle of sheep country? That's uh, that's pretty much yeah, that would, qualifying. That qualifies, yeah. That would have been like late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, you were ahead of your time. Yeah. How did you approach your subject with your concept? I grew up in a doctor's family. Everybody in my family is in the medical business. And so therefore, we tend to talk about things very matter of factly, like, well, we're going to have to take off your arm. You know, uh, now in certain kink circles, if you tell someone, well, we're going to have to take off your arm, they get all excited. And it's like, yeah, great. <laughs> Or anything up to that, you know, like, can, can we, can we nail your nipples down to a board? You know, would you like to have heavy weights hanging off of your labia? I don't try and talk people into anything. Generally, what I try and do is provide an, a, some sort of an environment where people feel comfortable enough to expose who they are, what they're all about, some part of their kinkiness and allow me to document it on camera. I mean, that's pretty basic, but really what it, that's what it comes down to. Every shoot that I do, and I, I shoot with different people, or sometimes I shoot the same people several times, but every shoot is different because it's what the models are into. I'm more of like an interpreter of bringing that to an audience. Now, a lot of the people that I work with are exhibitionists. They might not even know that they have an audience. They might not know that what they're doing really is interesting enough, but they do know that they like being naked and having people look at them. So we give them some options. How would you like to be naked, have people look at you, but maybe at the same time we hang you upside down by your ankles and set fire to your pubic hair? It's like, oh, sure, we get a lot of that stuff. A lot of my work sort of evolves around that. Over the years, because I've been on that cutting edge, because I was there, people grew up with, you know, seeing my pictures and all of that. I have a good reputation. People trust me so far. I haven't had anybody, you know, die on a shoot. So 
you know, people are willing to try things. Speaking of try things, have you ever been tried by the law? Have I ever been tried by the law? No, I have never been arrested. I have never been, have I ever been sued? No, I don't think I've ever been sued. I had to sue the fire department once, but okay. So I've never been sued, never been arrested, been audited several times. And each time they've either owed me money or it was a draw. Yeah, no, I think I got a pretty clean bill of health. So you came through pretty much the formative years of this unscathed, which um, some of your colleagues didn't make it. That's true. I've been very lucky. One of the things about, you know, when you have a studio and that's a responsibility, you tend to think a little different than some guy that just has a camera that runs around taking pictures. You know, it it, it makes life a little bit more serious. I tend to think things out. I don't take chances. I'm a corporation. I have lawyers. I have accountants. I have people that I can refer to for information. I used the word production earlier on, and that's what we do. We produce, hopefully, high-end erotica. Well, you certainly do. Looking at your pictures, there's one that uh, stuck out from the rest, and it is the uh, People's Choice Award. What is that about? There was a magazine in the adult world for a number of years called Adult Stars Magazine. They were kind of a balance to AVN, which was the adult video news. Adult AVN would give out awards and things based upon sales of videos. If video stores reported that Jenna Jameson's video, whatever it would be called, uh, sold this many, then she would get the award for that. The concept of the other magazine was they had a website where people could go and vote on things. And so they, they gave out People's Choices Awards. So, yeah, so I got Playboy's awards for one thing. I got the People's Choice Awards for something else. I got a variety of different awards. But the only one that I've ever gotten where actual, you know, people vote on it was the People's Choice Awards. Well, it's a pretty remarkable thing uh, flipping through your FetLife images and, and it pops up. And uh, also further down in the list is all the rock and roll stuff that you did, a small sample of it, which is amazing. Yeah, I before I, you know, ended up doing, you know, glamour and nude photography full time, I was involved in doing a number of album covers, promotional things, billboards for magazines, you know, having a studio in Los Angeles and our major industry around here is the entertainment industry. Uh, I did a lot of work within the entertainment industry, even for music that I don't particularly listen to, because contemporary popular music at the time that I was, you know, young and starting in business didn't interest me. I grew up playing the French horn in the classical orchestra. So I was always listening to opera or classical music or whatever. I, I, I had no interest. I went to the Monterey Pop Festival because I was invited to go there and take pictures. And it was being produced by um, my girlfriend's cousin. So I was like, okay, here, we'll give you, you know, if you guys show up, we'll give you some passes and you can go and have a fun weekend. I had no idea that any of these people would actually change the world and, and, and change perceptions. And, uh, you know, really it, at the time, no one had ever had a music pop festival before. It had never been done. This was, you know, before Woodstock. 
So the idea that something like this could actually be enjoyable was still pretty doubtful. Turned out to be, you know, uh, an amazing experience. And 50 years later, these are still events people are talking about. Yeah. I I was just recently contacted by the uh, Jimi Hendrix family. They're planning on using my picture again. On They're they're doing a, a 50th anniversary album release of some sort of the stuff from the Monterey Pop Festival and from some other things he did around that time. And so they're putting my picture on the cover. That's a nice thing to do. How does it feel to be a chronicler of history? I mean, you were there and captured it. May not have known it was history at the time, but but it certainly is now. How, How do you feel about the photographer's role as a storyteller? I wish I was more aware at the time. You know, you don't know that it's going to be history until, you know, years later and you realize, gee, that day that I sneezed turned out to be the most amazing day on earth. You know, I knew something was odd and different because he was setting fire to his guitar. You know, one eye was watching him. The other eye was, you know, looking around to where the fire exit is. But I didn't really expect this to, you know, have any sort of monumental significance. But yet, all these years later, generations later that, you know, that weren't even born at the time, talk about Jimi Hendrix like he's a god. Well, he he certainly was a trailblazer at the time and changed the way rock and roll is. Changed the way people played guitars, changed the way rock and roll is, changed a lot of things and uh, changed performance art for uh, rock and rollers. You know, now it wasn't enough to just move back and forth and bounce your guitar up and down on your hip. Now you had to do gymnastics if you wanted to be anything. Yes, we had we had taken it from your voice to your whole performance as being the the show. Yeah, it's a show. And boy, that was an amazing show. Ken, it has certainly been a pleasure talking with you this evening. It is a, a walk down memory lane. You certainly were the historian for a large part of it. Playboy magazine, which was a a staple for many of us coming up through kink back then. And I've seen your pictures over the years. And when I found you on FetLife, I went, can't be the same Ken Marcus. Same guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, from the very beginning, I've been, you know, perving all of these other news groups on the internet to see what people are interested in. And then I can create images that appeal to those groups. Why would it be any different with FetLife? And the the great thing about FetLife is that people aren't as concerned about their nudity. People aren't as concerned about images of their sexuality and their happy to put them out there for free for the world to be able to see for the cost of a, of a membership. And I've watched this sort of sociological change over the years of people who were horrified to have their pictures taken to, you know, now they're signing up and paying good money so that they can show you what their private parts are all about. Yeah, it's a different world. It is. It really is. And it's, it's, it's amazing what happens if you don't die young. Well, Ken, we'll definitely check back with you another 50. This was enjoyable. Thank you. I hope that your audience was able to, you know, glean anything out of that. But, um, yeah, welcome to the world. Okay, thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon. Great. All right, you guys. Thanks. Have a good night. 
You have been listening to episode 175 of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. See you next week when we present His Girl Friday on Boot Blacking. Thank you.